Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Our guest is David Gibb, professor of history at the University of Arizona, who has written extensively on NATO and what is happening with health care for all. Is it coming to California? We speak to Carmen Comsty, lead regulatory policy specialist at the California Nurses Association and a commissioner on the Healthy California for All Commission. And food not bombs under attack in many states across the country. Why? What's going on? We speak with Keith McHenry, co-founder of the Global food not bombed movement. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden charged that Russian President Vladimir Putin is continuing to build forces along Ukraine's border. He warned there would be serious economic consequences for Putin, including personal sanctions in the event of an invasion. There will be enormous consequences if he were to go in and invade, as he could, the entire country, or a lot less than that as well for Russia, not only in terms of economic consequences and political consequences, but it'll be enormous consequences worldwide. This would be the largest, if he were to move in with all those forces, to be the largest invasion since World War II. For its part, Russia warned it would quickly take retaliatory measures if the U.S. and its allies reject its security demands and continue their aggressive policies. Russia is demanding NATO guarantees it will not admit Ukraine as a member. Presidential advisors from Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany were in Paris to discuss ways to revive a stalled peace agreement for eastern Ukraine. Ross Cullen reports. The meeting comes as part of the so-called Normandy format between the four countries. The French president says dialogue must continue with Moscow, but Europe must also prepare a punitive response to any further aggression by Russia. Emmanuel Macron is set to hold a separate call with Ukrainian leader Zelensky and Russian President Putin on Friday. Ross Cullen, Paris. U.S. deaths from COVID-19 reached nearly 3,000 yesterday. Even as new cases nationwide appear to be declining, hospitalizations also remain high at 150,000. About 26,000 people across the country are in hospital intensive care units with COVID. A new federal report says extremist groups in the U.S. appear to increasingly view attacking the power grid as a means of disrupting the country. The report from the Department of Homeland Security says domestic extremists have developed credible, specific plans to attack electricity infrastructure since at least 2020. The document was obtained by the Associated Press. The leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and nine other members have pleaded not guilty to charges, including seditious conspiracy, for their role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. They may go to trial in July, as Mary Sherman reports. The leader of the right-wing group Oath Keepers pleaded not guilty to seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Stuart Rhodes' attorney says claims that he conspired to use force to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election are fiction. Far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones says he met virtually with the House Select Committee investigating the attack and pleaded the fifth on the advice of counsel. Jones noted he wanted to answer questions but feared the committee would twist his words. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. San Jose has voted to require gun owners to carry liability insurance. The vote by the San Jose City Council is believed to be the first such measure in the nation. The council also approved a second measure that would levy a fee on gun owners to fund violence prevention services and gun safety programs. San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo said he had heard the arguments from opponents and summed them up. And that is that this is about punishing law-abiding gun owners because crooks aren't going to follow the law. Uh, this won't stop mass shootings or keep bad people from committing violent crime. 
But Licardo said the majority of gun deaths are not by homicide, they're by suicide. He said just as auto insurance has provided incentives for safer driving and safety features for cars, gun liability insurance could do the same for firearms possession and storage. To the extent that insurance can spur us to be safer and spur safety innovation in products and services and incentivize the purchase of those things, so it's gun safes, trigger locks, engaging safety classes, whatever it might be, insurance can make gun owners and their families safer. The vote by the San Jose City Council came after more than 100 people testified for and against the ordinances. Gun rights groups said they would sue. French lawmakers unanimously voted to approve a law banning so-called conversion therapies that try to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. The law authorizes jail time and fines for practitioners convicted of trying to convert LGBTQ people to heterosexuality or traditional gender expectations. The law also opens the possibility for others to file suits on behalf of victims. Supporters of that provision said it would address the reality that some people would hesitate or otherwise be unable to alert the police themselves. The French government's Equalities and Diversity Minister described so-called conversion therapies as barbaric and said the suffering they inflict very often leaves permanent marks on bodies and minds. French President Emmanuel Macron will sign the legislation he tweeted, being oneself is not a crime. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and I would like to welcome our guests uh, to discuss Ukraine. I'd like to welcome David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. He's written extensively on NATO. David Gibbs is author of the book, First, Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and Destruction of Yugoslavia, which was published by Vanderbilt University Press. Thank you so very much for joining us, David Gibbs. Uh, Thank you for having me. Headlines this morning that are saying that uh, leaders in the Ukraine are saying they're really concerned about what is being portrayed here in the West as a Russian buildup of troops up against their border. And they don't think that the troop level is sufficient for an invasion. Now, let's try and unpack a bit what is going on here. You have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the economic concerns of Europe. Europe very concerned because 40% of their gas comes from Russia, and Germany in particular, very concerned Mm. about an escalation of things Mm. with Russia. David? I think I'd like to back up a little bit and give some of the background to what's going on. I, I think the key issue here is NATO, and that the United States has, since the end of the Cold War, not only wanted to keep NATO intact, but it has been expanding NATO kind of as a symbol of American prestige and power. It didn't really have any function after the Cold War, but America wanted to keep it as uh, to you know demonstrate the United States is still a superpower. And the problem is the U.S. had made a agreement in 1990, never to expand NATO into Eastern Europe. In 1990, the Russian then Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, agreed not to block the reunification of Germany if the United States would promise never to expand NATO eastward. And the U.S. firmly promised never to expand NATO eastward. This promise was made multiple times by multiple officials, not only by the U.S., but by German officials as well. And the U.S. promptly started violating that agreement almost immediately. And, you know, the Russian people, not only the Russian government, but the Russian people do see this as a threat to their security, an act of bad faith by the United States. And so I think that really is the background here. The specific issue with Ukraine is the United States has been insisting that Ukraine has the right to join NATO. And the Russians say that this is is a country on their borders, and uh, it would be the same as Russia establishing an alliance with Mexico. The U.S. would never allow that. And so Russia does not want to allow the Ukraine to join NATO. And so I think the key sticking point here is NATO. And the American insistence that the Ukrainians should be allowed into NATO, and the Russian insistence 
that that will never be allowed to happen because it's a threat to their security. So I think that really is the main issue here. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, we have discussed uh, this issue um, in relation to NATO on our show. I mean, from the the last time there was a huge crisis with the Crimea. So we do understand that there was an agreement. NATO is not to push up against Russia's borders. Since that agreement, that is exactly what NATO has done and is doing right now whose interests are being met here because the mainstream media here, they're all over the story, painting it as Russia's aggression in relation mm-hmm. to the Ukraine. The leadership mm-hmm. in the Ukraine, they're trying, it seems a bit, maybe not behind the scenes, but publicly, to calm the waters. At least that's what they're saying as of a few hours ago from a press mm-hmm. that I've read. They're not seeing it as sufficient for Mm -hmm. an invasion. So you have that on the one hand, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, you have President Biden uh, sanctioning, announcing that he will sanction Vladimir Putin personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, You Mm -hmm. have him trying to rally the troops in Europe, so to speak, the so-named allies. The UK Mm -hmm. seems to be particularly hawkish, certainly more so than than Germany. So there's some economic issues and there's some nervousness on the part of some of the European allies. So the issue is, is will they really get on board with the U.S. program that seems to be interested in escalating things? right now. There are three main players here that I'd like to refer to. One is the Ukrainian government under President Zelensky. The other is uh, the US under Biden, obviously Russia under Putin. I think they all have domestic reasons initially for wanting to hype the idea of a war. Uh, In the case of uh, Putin, he's actually a very popular figure, contrary to popular belief, but he has been facing a really terrible toll from COVID, more so than most countries, with a very weak vaccination response. And so he's trying to, I think, distract attention from that issue. Biden, obviously, is in a very weak position in the United States, particularly after the catastrophic uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think he's trying to make up for that, those failures by trying to look tough with Russia. And I think the president of the Ukraine is actually a fairly moderate figure, but who has a very prominent kind of um, uh, extremist element in the Ukraine that are kind of very anti-Russian, and he's trying to, I think, appease them. On the other hand, I think all three parties don't really want war, because I think everybody realizes how catastrophic an actual shooting war could be, or would be. And so I think what they want to do is go up to the brink and get as much political credit as they can for looking tough, but then step back. I think you're starting to see that very clearly, particularly with the uh, government of the Ukraine which would probably pay the worst price for any war that were to come. And so I, I do see some hesitation there on that account, and hopefully we'll see more moving back to the brink by all sides in this case. As far as the Europeans go, I think there's always been a tendency to kind of want to bandwagon with the dominant power, which is the United States, and get whatever advantage they can from that. Um, Britain's clearly doing that. I think the Germans are facing a very specific issue which is, as you noted, they get a lot of their natural gas from Russia, and they recently are completing the Coldstream 2 pipeline to enhance their dependence on Russian, inexpensive Russian gas. And so they have economic reasons for not wanting to be too confrontational with Russia, since they're so economically dependent on Russian natural resources. Um, and I, I think, nevertheless, there really is a very serious possibility that just the heated rhetoric that we've been seeing uh, I have to say, particularly from the United States by Biden recently, is very worrying because once you start engaging in that kind of heated rhetoric, it can kind of almost force you into a military conflict just to demonstrate you're not backing down. And this is an extremely dangerous situation since both the United States and Russia have a thousand active nuclear warheads on high readiness. And we cannot rule out the possibility of a nuclear exchange with catastrophic consequences. That is at least a possibility. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned um, the the uh, pipeline, the the Nord Stream two, which is not yes. yet operational, but Germany has a lot of economic um, interest in that uh, moving forward. And right now, it seems to be a bit of a scramble of the Biden administration trying to figure out how 
Europe and Germany in particular could be less um, dependent on uh, Russia for natural gas, and they're trying to, you know, send uh, ships, et cetera, um, carrying the gas, but it's also uh, here, or at least it's reported that Europe really doesn't have the capacity uh, in terms of shipping uh, to mm. receive natural gas that way. So they're still going to be dependent on what's happening yep. with Russia. I mean, I, I, I think you may very well be right there about uh, this is some saber rattling that at the end of the day is going to be resolved one way or the other. But to, you know, to understand what's happening, because even on the, on the Democratic side, some of the so-named liberal Democrats, they seem to be, you know, also, uh, pushing for, you know, a strong mm-hmm. response from the U.S. and, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, David Gibbs, tell us a little bit about the history of the connection between Russia and the Ukraine, because they have been linked historically, and indeed the Ukraine was part of the former uh, Soviet uh, Union until uh, the early 1991 or something like that. But there's a lot yes, right. that goes much further back. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I think the important thing to know about the contemporary Ukraine is, yes, it was, of course, part of the Soviet Union, um, and as a result of that, the Ukraine is a very divided country. A sizable portion, about half, um, are either Russian-speaking or partially Russian-speaking. And the Russian-speaking element in the country looks more to Russia than to the West as the power they respect. Uh, whereas you have a Ukrainian-speaking population in the center and west of the country that is very anti-Russian and looks to the U.S. and Europe rather than to Russia. And so I think, uh, you know, a lot of what you're seeing here is divisions within the Ukraine. I mean, the press has been misreporting this as, you know, Russia's bullying the Ukraine and the Ukrainian people against Russia. That's not really true. Only Ukrainian people are against Russia. Sizable numbers of the Ukrainian population see Russia here as, the, as playing a positive role. Um, and, um, you know, what you're seeing, for example, the, the, the main focal point of tension is in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, which is largely Russian-speaking. And in 2014, uh, this region seceded from the Ukraine and formed independent, two independent states. I believe they're called Donetsk and Luhansk. And they've been trying to remain separated from the Ukraine, whereas the Ukrainian central government, with U.S. support, has been trying to fight them into returning to the Ukraine. You've had a civil war going on with Russia backing these, these secessionist elements in these regions. If there is an actual war, and I certainly hope there isn't, the most likely scenario would be Russia sending large numbers of troops into the Donbass region to defend the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk and achieve kind of a permanent separation of those regions from the Ukraine. Uh, that would be the most likely scenario. Um, one other thing I did want to mention is the domestic U.S. context here, which is one of the things that I think is being channeled, is that you've had basically a large number of people who brought us the war on terror, who brought us the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And these are precisely the people who are arguing most strongly for confrontation with Russia. Um, I think one of the things we're paying a price for in the United States, we've never really had accountability for the catastrophe of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. We've never called to account the people who made that possible. And these are precisely the people who are now making policy in the Biden State Department. And um, so I think U.S. domestic politics has a lot to do with this, particularly that the Democrats have been moving much more closely to what you might call the Richard Cheney, Liz Cheney wing of the Republican Party, which are very hawkish and confrontational. Mm. Yeah, uh, a good point. Uh, well put there. And, you know, you talk about the eastern industrial uh, regions, and there has been conflict uh, going on there. Um, it is reported that some 14,000 people, uh, lives have been lost in that war. Yeah. So there is an, right. an ongoing, ongoing conflict. But in addition to what is happening on the domestic front, we're going to have to wrap it up in a few minutes um, with the Biden right. administration and how they're moving forward with this. 
you know, people are wondering, well, what is the U.S. interest when you look at the global picture with, you know, kind of ripping up this kind of hysteria and the headlines? I mean, I'm just looking at one right now uh, that says, uh, Russia-Ukraine tension, biggest crisis in Europe since World War II, you know, that kind of thing. But what, what is, right. in the global context, um, the interest of the United States to be taking the position that it is right now? I think the principal one is to demonstrate that it's still a superpower. I think America, since the end of the Cold War, has been sort of a superpower without a mission. Our mission during the Cold War was to fight the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union ceased to exist as a country. I think American officials really have been um, uh, really looking, in a certain sense, enemy to replace the Soviet Union. And we've gone through multiple ones, including al-Qaeda. And now it seems the U.S. has settled on post-communist Russia. But this was a completely unnecessary conflict. Russia was very pro-American in the early 90s. And the U.S. seems to have done almost everything we could to alienate them by violating this agreement not to expand NATO. So I don't think the U.S. has really any real interests in the Ukraine per se. I think the issue is the Ukraine is a symbol of America's continuing role as the world's superpower um, and that America uh, has the right to expand globally and have basically the whole world as a sphere of influence. And uh, they really don't like anybody to stand in the way of that objective. And so I, th- I think basically just demonstrating American power is the is the U.S. interest in this case. There really is no other interest. Yeah, and, and we know that the U.S. is concerned with the cozying up of Russia and China, for example, because it's all the concern about China. We are going to have sure. to leave it there, but, you know, even Reuters is reporting that U.S. companies, they're nervous about, you know, this, how many sanctions and I suppose the impact on business. I mean, you have Chevron, GE, and other big yeah. U.S. corporations yeah. mm-hmm. who are doing business in Russia, and they're worried about all this as well. So to be continued, we would love to have you back because we know that sure. this situation is going to continue, but we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. David Gibbs, thank you so very much. Thank you. Have a good day. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to take a station break, and then we're going to be talking about what California is trying to do to bring health care to its residents. And then later in the hour, why is food not bombed under attack by various cities across the United States? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Many lawmakers say the state's health care system is in need of urgent care itself. They want it replaced with a single-payer plan that wouldn't cost anything to enroll in. But as Eyewitness News reporter Rob McMillan tells us, critics of the plan say it would be anything but free. The notion of universal or single-payer health care in California is moving forward. At the State Assembly Health Committee meeting earlier this month, supporters said the current health care system is broken and needs to be fixed. After nearly eight years of trying to make health care work for all Californians, something has to give. Just maybe single-payer health can be the catalyst for that change. But there's still a long way to go and a lot of questions about a bill that would move everyone in California off their current health care plans and onto one run by the state called CalCare. An untested, untried experimental system 
the same government that bungled EDD, DMV, etc. What could possibly go wrong? If Assembly Bill 1400 is approved, a nine-person board appointed by the governor and other politicians would run CalCare. Every resident of the state would be eligible and no one would pay anything to enroll nor pay anything for covered benefits. So there are understandably many questions on both sides on how to pay for it. Really, it isn't free. I mean, somehow it has to get paid for. According to the Assembly Committee on Health, this year the total cost of health care in California will be a staggering $517 billion. Of that, state, local, and federal spending, for example, the money we all contribute to Medicare, is about $295 billion. That leaves $222 billion that's covered by employers, insurance companies, and out-of-pocket costs that are paid for by us. But if we go to single-payer health care, that $222 billion part of the pie, well, we'd have to find it someplace else. What's proposed would be a 2.3% tax on businesses grossing more than $2 million a year, a 1.25% payroll tax on businesses with more than 50 employees, and an additional 1% tax on businesses who pay their employees more than 50 grand a year. Plus, there would be taxes on some individuals starting at 0.5% for those making more than 150 grand a year, and that percentage rising all the way up to 2.5% on many millionaires. Now, that funding mechanism, also known as Assembly Constitutional Amendment 11, would have to be approved by voters, and we likely wouldn't be able to vote on it until 2024. But even if it were to pass, it won't be nearly enough to pay for single-payer health care. Remember, the CalCare board will have to make up a more than $220 billion shortfall. And according to the Assembly Committee on Health, ACA 11 is projected to raise $163 billion, which they say is significantly less than the actual need. I don't want to be sitting here and making promises, and we can't fulfill them. We do that a lot here. All righty. So I think that actually was the clip we wanted to play in our segment on CalCare. And before I welcome our guests and introduce that segment, I would like to remind our listeners that you are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And if you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org. Scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth, you'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Um, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at so True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide in sound, on SoundCloud. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany. And uh, we are now going to um, turn our attention to the struggle for healthcare. The United States is the only industrialized, wealthy country in the world that does not offer universal health care. This, according to the National Academy of Medicine, from Barbados that island nation to China to Canada, universal health care is offered. But in the United States, the battle for a universal uh, health care program has been going on, if you would believe this, for nearly a century, nearly 100 years. Um, Medicare and Medicaid programs were established in 1965. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed legislation, the Social Security Act, popularly known as the Medicare bill, into law. Medicare, a health insurance program for the elderly, and also Medicaid, a health insurance program for those who are impoverished. Establishing both the Medicare health insurance program for the elderly and uh, Medicaid, um, they were all put in place under the Johnson administration. But this year, 2022, marks the 51st anniversary of both of these programs. And indeed, Medicaid in particular continues to be 
a bone of contention. Um, and we know under the Obama administration, the battle to win and keep the Affordable Care Act as limited as it was, it was won during the Obama administration after much fighting and debating. Um, but it is something. It is not what a lot of us would like to have. But despite uh, the need of their residents, even that, um, the what is known popularly as Obamacare, several red states have refused to expand uh, Medicaid and, um, and also try to chip away at the Affordable Care Act. And the recent Build Back Better Act, written with the expansion of Medicaid as one of its focal points, well, that's now stalled in the Senate. And uh, bills to create and fund universal health care face opposition from powerful uh, lobbies, including uh, insurance uh, companies. And, of course, all this as the COVID pandemic continues to rage in the U.S. And um, it is said that the cost of health care in the U.S., the people living in the United States, is already the highest in the world. And with COVID, many more thousands of people have fallen into debt um, because of the health care crisis. But for residents of California and perhaps an example for the nation, legislation is now being considered that would make California the first state in the U.S. to offer universal health care to its residents. It's called CalCare. The bill number is AB 1400, which guarantees care for all, and it has passed both the Health Care and Appropriations Committee, now on the Assembly floor. But to uh, fill us in on all of this, I'd like to welcome uh, Carmen uh, Comsey, who is the lead regulatory policy specialist at the California Nurses Association and the commissioner on the Healthy California for all commissions. She is also, by the way, one of the authors of the CalCare Bill AB uh, 1400. Uh, Carmen uh, Comstig, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I don't know if you uh, managed to um, hear the clip uh, that we ran, but you know, it allegedly was giving both sides of things and on the one hand uh, saying that, you know, explaining what AB uh, 1400 is, but also saying that it's a bit doubtful because the bill would cost a lot of money and that, you know, a lot of taxes would need to be levied on various sectors of people in California to pay for it. What is your comeback uh, to that? Is that, do you think that has, first of all, is that true? And secondly, is that really the primary um, concern that we should be looking at right now when it comes to people's health care? Well, you know, I, I think th that is quite the, the opposition talking point to talk about the cost, but really what we have to understand is that we are already paying for health care. Um, all those numbers that are out there, um, we're already paying for, for health care through insurance premiums, through co-pays, uh, deductibles, cost sharing. Um, as you said, you know, uh, there are millions of Californians in medical debt, um, and there's also... Um, you know, we know that we're paying paying for health care through things like GoFundMe accounts, um, uh, where a third of GoFundMe accounts are paid through, uh, are are about trying to cover health care costs. So, you know, when we break down the numbers, um, and we've done this a lot in the Healthy California for All Commission, is that we are already paying um, the health care costs, that number that, that everybody likes to cite, um, are, um, we're already paying that through what, we like to call a private tax that we pay to, to uh, health insurance companies. And what we, be, we would be doing with CalCare is replacing that with progressively fund, uh, um, publicly funded and uh, progressive uh, broad-based taxes. And I think, you know, what's important to know here is that um, we want the legislature to really own the, their position and particularly the the Democratic supermajority, which supports universal single-payer health care um, as a platform, um, that, that they actually do the work and uh, to help us 
figure out how we can fund, um, uh, replace those private taxes with a publicly uh, financed progressive tax system. So that, that's really, uh, you know, the, the, the real question here about the, the cost uh, analysis. But really, I want to hone in again on, on the, the thing that we really should be worried about is that, is that you know, we know that underinsurance um, and uninsurance are, are costing lives and health of Californians, and we cannot accept that continuing anymore. And we know, we've known for decades, we know from examples from other countries that this is how we, uh, we get, get more coverage, uh, cover everyone, and pay less is by adopting a universal single-payer health care system. And I think that's really at the heart of what we're talking about, making sure that everyone gets the health care that they need. Right. And, you know, people in, uh, in various cities around the country are listening to this broadcast right now, and I'm sure with some interest, because uh, New York actually tried um, something, from what I understand, I think it was New York and, and Maine, uh, perhaps, and, and didn't get through uh, with having uh, universal health care for their residents. But tell us ag- again um, how this would work. I mean, would it mean people who already have health care, who have private health care, can they keep that health care in order to, uh, you know, access the system? Or are people being asked to give up the health care they have right now? Uh, um, and when this becomes law, um, you know, sign up for this particular uh, system. So, um, so CalCare and AB fourteen hundred. What would happen is that we would guarantee healthcare as a right um, for everybody in the state of California um, and provide comprehensive healthcare uh, to everyone. Um, automatic enrollment, um, and I think one one of the things that that uh, is uh, is happening is that. All we're doing, we're not taking away anyone's health care. We're providing more care to, to more people. The, the only thing that is changing is who's paying for it. Um, instead of hundreds of health care plans, um, health care plans that deny care, that, you know, that are really out there, their corporate model is to deny care so that they can um, increase their profits. It's called a uh, medical loss ratio. Um, and, and we're going to, uh, um, to replace those private health insurance plans, um, and we're going to fold in um, existing public programs, so Medicare, Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal in California, um, Affordable Care Act coverage, we're going to fold that into CalCare and the, the state system that we would, um, that we would create under AB 1400. And really the emphasis here is that, you know, the only thing is cha- that's changing is, is who's writing the checks to your providers. Um, no one's health care uh, is going to change. People will still be able to see their same doctors and providers, and they would be able to see more doctors and providers. The only difference would be that there would be no prior authorization requirements, no referrals, um, none of those types of barriers where, where you know, uh, health insurance companies try to limit who you see so that they can make money. Right, and and so for our listeners to, to basically understand this, even though you're having what uh, proposing to have automatic uh, enrollment, and that seems to indicate that people would have to give up the private health insurance they have right now, and we all know that there are different levels of health insurance that people have. Some people have really expensive, um, even outside of um, the Obamacare, have really expensive uh, health care that tends to pay for everything, and then there's some that have deductible. But what you're saying is that people should not worry about that because whatever doctor you're seeing right now, you will be able to keep that doctor and that cost will be covered and that people who now can't afford health care will be covered. Um, Would that include um, families who are undocumented as well um, living in California? Carmen? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things that's really important um, CalCare and a lot of, um, and all of the other um, universal health care um, proposals that are out there, like Medicare for All on the national level, um, all of them would be provided, you know, regardless without, uh, to immigration status, regardless 
ability to pay. So an important aspect here is that, you know, you're not going to be paying something different. You're not going to have um, co-pays or deductibles or or, or co-insurance uh, based on your income. Um, and, uh, you know, so yes, it would be provided to um, all all California residents, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of of your marital status, regardless of your prior health conditions. Um, you know, and there wouldn't be the tiering of care that we currently see under um, the Affordable Care Act. You know, there's not going to be a different gold, silver, bronze, uh, platinum plans. Um, so that type of differentiation wouldn't happen. And, and I think really what we're saying is that, you know, when we put everybody into this, uh, a single system, a single pool of healthcare, you know, we can, we can, um, we can ensure that we have the, the savings and, and, uh, uh, we can reduce the profit, profit making from the health insurance companies and the healthcare corporations that we see today. And we can, funnel that money into covering everyone um, and and um, covering more services. Um, and, and that's really a, an important part here is that, you know, under CalCare, we're going to be providing um, benefits that are more expansive than any uh, private health insurance plan or public health insurance plan. So it'd be, it would cover more than Medi-Cal and Medicare currently cover. You know, we're going to cover uh, mental health care, prescription drug prices, um, long-term care, so long-term services and supports that, that um, our elderly and, and people living with disabilities um, need. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, it, it, it's truly... Uh, uh, one of the reasons we can do this again is because you know we can capture um, the administrative cost savings that occur by eliminating the private health insurance uh, uh, um, uh, right. plans, the multiple health insurance plans that exist today, um, and and really uh, garnering the power of of all of the of Californians in one program to to negotiate with big pharmaceutical companies to negotiate with healthcare corporations to reduce prices um, and also um, increase uh, increase the reimbursement costs for, for those providers who who currently aren't getting enough and, and why we're we're struggling to get coverage for things like mental health care um, or things right. like primary care. Um, so the, that's really what's happening here is that, you know, we're trying to make a, a more fair uh, system for both those providers that, that provide um, services to the needy and provide services that are currently under underpaid, um, and then okay. at the same time pa- trying to reduce Pardon, costs. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, we, we are short of time here. I've got to move on to the, to the next segment, but... What you're saying is really um, critical information here. And for people who want to get more information and who want to support your efforts, I'm not surprised that it's the Nurses Association that is strongly in, in support of this and help to craft this. But if people want more information and want to support this, what should they do quickly? Um, if, if, if you want to support um, CalCare in our efforts, you can go to nationalnursesunited.org slash CalCare to learn more. You know, we're going to the floor sometime, perhaps uh, Thursday, perhaps Monday of next week by the end of January. So folks should get more information, contact their assembly members, um, and, uh, you know, it's it's really this ground floor yeah. of support that, that is that is really important to ensuring that we get this bill moving and 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 we have that we have that Carmen I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there however we appreciate you joining us and um, you know we will let our listeners know on the social media where they could get more information about this thank you our Carmen Comstey I'd like to thank Betty Dumas who helped with finding the guests for this segment and for her work in this area this is Margaret Prescott host of Sojourner Truth. What is going on with these attacks in different cities against our food, not bombs? I'd like to welcome to Sojourner Truth, Keith McHenry, who is a co-founder of the global food, not bombs movement. He's currently based in Houston, uh, where the local chapter is actually defying the city government. They're risking arrest. Uh, Keith is the author of Hungry for Peace and the Anarchist Cookbook, and he has spent over 500 days in jail 
For what? Just for feeding people who are hungry. Uh, Keith McHenry, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, so, Keith, what, what's going on? Because uh, first I, I heard about what's happening in, in the city of Santa Cruz in California with Food Not Bombs facing eviction after providing meals every day for the community for over 670 days. And now there's stuff happening in Florida and also where you are in Texas. Um, quickly tell us what what's the story here. Yeah, so, um, you know, cities around the United States have enacted laws, I believe it's over 70 cities, but it may be even more now, against uh, limiting the, the sharing of free food with the hungry. And in most cases, their goal is to move the homeless to the edge and margins of the city where um, no one will see them, and there will be no political pressure to actually provide housing, health care, and the things that people uh, need. And so we were um, so we had a series of arrests in Florida that included Orlando, Tampa, and Fort Lauderdale. And we had our first real solid legal victory in Fort Lauderdale, where the city settled uh, their case with us um, about a little over a month ago. And it was a situation where we were serving food in front of the downtown post office, or uh, library, and um, where a lot of unhoused people congregated, and they started arresting us. And they also were arresting um, a World War II vet and and, uh, and, and actually a colleague of Martin Luther King's, uh, um, Arnold Ab- Abbott, who was uh, sharing food in, in Fort Lauderdale through that time as well. He, unfortunately, has passed away. He was 90 at, during his, at his last arrest. And then in um, – but in – for instance, cities like San Francisco, they, um, create, they we were arrested over a thousand times there from 1988, which is uh, when we were Food Not Bombs was first declared a national security threat by the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force in a memo they sent to the yeah yeah wait a minute wait, hang on you're saying that Food Not Bombs feeding people feeding the hungry is a national security threat. I mean, it reminds me about what they said about the Black Panther Party free breakfast program, that that was a national security risk. I just want to underscore that. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, it's incredible. We were, and then uh, that was uh, an August uh, 29th, 1988 memo. Um, Then that that year, that Thanksgiving, uh, there turned out the National Guard had domestic terrorism workshop at their armories around the country where Food Not Bombs was the uh, case study. And then years later, uh, about uh, in, in 2009, I happened to witness on C-SPAN a lecture where they compared uh, the State Department, U.S. State Department, compared al-Qaeda to Food Not Bombs and declared that we were much more dangerous because we were indigenous to our communities. We're currently active in over a thousand cities of the world. And, and, and that we were friendly, unlike al-Qaeda, which they said was probably going to not last another 20 years because who's excited about strapping bombs on their bodies and blowing themselves up? So they, the, the, it turns out it's the message that's the problem. And the, the message being that we should be diverting uh, some of our military spending. I mean, we just, uh, I think Pelosi just requested um, more hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, dump into the a conflict in Ukraine that they're trying to stir up. And, um, and, and meanwhile, we are having record evictions and a record increase in homelessness in the United States, which is, um, you know, where there's no actual real national policy happening to address the crisis. And according to the Princeton um, Eviction uh, Project, they said over 40 million Americans are facing eviction. And even if it's uh, only so-called only a million or so people forced into the streets in the next coming months, that is a, a huge tragedy that we could have avoided had we started uh, using our uh, resources for education, health care, and other social services, which was the threat the State Department mentioned at the Tufts University lecture in uh, April of, of 2009. So, um, now, so in San Francisco, the issue was, when we were declared a national security threat, that we're serving food in front of Golden Gate Park, where people are coming into the park, and we're greeting tourists and, and people with our literature about disarmament and 
uh, vegan, you know, the attributes of being vegan and so on. And they did not want that to be a public uh, spectacle and suggested that we serve food inside of an armory out at Ocean Beach. Well, that was the same thing. That's what's going on in Houston, which is the city government. We serve food every uh, several times a week at the downtown library, which is where a lot of unhoused people congregate because that's their access to um, not only books, but also computers and so on. And so their uh, effort is to drive food not bombs into a uh, vacant lot under a freeway. And we've had years of negotiation with the city, um, agreed that we would go under the freeway if they would put a billboard up letting people know where we were, because this is another uh, problem with the with this attacks on food not bombs is that they um, you know they they push you out of sight and then do whatever they can to try to make it possible so hungry people can't find you and that's what's going on here in in Santa Cruz California as well where um, uh, the city has been and the county have been completely hostile to the fact that we are essentially the only food for unhoused people in the community and have been since uh, March 14th of 2020, when all the other soup kitchens closed down. And uh, we were also the only hand-washing, reliable hand-washing station. Um, we became the location where people could gather new clothes because, you know, for, um, you know, even if you are an unhoused person allowed in a, in a um, laundromat, which is very rare, um, there were no laundromats open during the first uh, hundreds. 100 days of the pandemic. So we were providing, you know, changes of clothes, basically, as a result. And we were also the only drinking water. And this was common in many of the Food Not Bombs chapters uh, around the world, where during the pandemic, Food Not Bombs or other mutual aid organizations stepped up and filled the gap that was um, closed because they had to, under the uh, conditions of the uh, COVID-19 closed the indoor food programs, and most of the programs were indoors, and that left Food Not Bombs to be the people actually stepping up to provide the food and water to people that otherwise would have no access to it. And so we've been getting right. evicted repeatedly here in Santa Cruz. Um, in fact, today is our last day at where we're serving, and we have had to scramble to get more equipment and uh, a trailer to carry our, you know, our, our tables and everything, and uh, and had to uh, send out press releases announcing the new location. And this is the third. Uh, this would be the third change of location in 2022. That sounds like a lot of harassment uh, going on. We're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there, Keith. But you know, personally, I'm a big fan of of, of food, not bombs, and the idea that you're going to criminalize, first of all, criminalize people for being unhoused rather than provide housing, and then you're going to criminalize people for feeding the unhoused and, and others in need because they're giving away uh, free food just, you know, says something about the uh, priorities here in the nation. So all the best to you, uh, Keith. Uh, McHenry, thank, thank you. you for your work, and thank you for joining us. All Great. Right. Thank you. Bless you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All righty. We are out of time. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archive at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening, and y'all, please stay safe.